Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to be with you today. I think we've got a really good episode. Today I want to talk to you about Book of Mormon historicity. And I don't want to talk about in terms of like, let's dive into anachronisms and let's dive into 19th century material. And then let's talk about NHM and, and let's talk about Bountiful and let's talk about the, in the frankincense trails that Lehi and, and his family would have traveled. Instead, what I want to do is talk about this peculiar moment right now at this very instance in Mormonism where you're beginning to see the conversation open up in dramatic ways from dramatic different directions in terms of trying to create space for something less than the 100% literal perspective of Book of Mormon historicity. And I want to start our conversation off with some quotes from a a scholar, Jared Hickman. It it should be stated, Jared Hickman is a member of the church. Uh, He's also a scholar, a professor. Uh, The guy's just a really smart dude. And, And to get our conversation kind of started, I wanted to share several quotes from him. Um, and and I, sh- I want to read one later. I'll, I'll try to link this article with the podcast so you can read it. But I, I know Dan Peterson mentions this quote in one place and kind of works with it in one of his blog posts. But this is later on in the conversation. But it kind of sets up what, what Jared Hickman says at the beginning. And so Hickman says, uh, quote, Exciting things are happening in Book of Mormon studies at the moment. Within the Mormon bubble, there seems now to be increasing support for popping that bubble by moving away from a siege mentality focused on defending the historicity of the Book of Mormon. The emergence of new interlocutors, and and that's essentially somebody you're engaging a conversation with. Uh, He continues, laboring under broad intellectual shifts in academia over the last several years, especially the post-secular turn, has made it so that Mormons if they are willing and make themselves able, can now engage in scholarly conversation about their sacred book in different ways with different people, most of whom don't have a polemical axe to grind, unquote. And that's what I want to talk about today, is that this is this exciting moment where scholars, Givens, Bushman, Hickman, Miller, um, Patrick Mason, uh, Sam Brown, and, and even people who in the past wanted to really defend a rigid literal view, I'm beginning to see people over at Fair Mormon, for instance, begin to loosen their grip a little bit. And you're seeing things come out. I know Mike Ash, for instance, uh, is working on a book right now that'll be out soon. And in this book, he's going to, he, he's, he's assured me that he's created in his mind a new way and in this book a new way 
to frame these things that allows us to let go of some of the stuff that doesn't match up with with science or with reason. And and so I'm interested to see that. And so uh, Jared Hickman goes on. He's asked the question. The question is framed to him. It says, your article argues that Book of Mormon, that the Book of Mormon can be partially understood within the context of 19th century American Indian prophetic movements in their spiritual text. Why do you believe that to be the case? And what does such a context tell us about Mormon's book? Now, here's Hickman's answer. He says, quote, I would say that in terms of the immediate historical context of its initial publication and reception, the Book of Mormon is best understood as a contribution to a tradition as old as the entity called America, a tradition of apprehending the two continents of the Western Hemisphere as a millenarian state, a place for civilization's renewal and consummation. So what he's saying is that the Book of Mormon is best understood within the context or milieu of this place called America. And and essentially he's saying as long as that place has been called America, right? That if we go back far enough, there are not people there calling it that. We don't have to go back too far either. And he's saying it's best situated in this environment, in this milieu that starts when this place is known as America. He continues, he says, quote, the apocalyptic event of radically unforeseen encounter in the Americas, which empowered Europe in decimated Amerindia in unprecedented ways, demanded new grand narratives all around. So now he's also saying, look, this environment was ripe for this thing to be created in this moment. He says, quote, the Book of Mormon rushes into this vacuum and provides a grand narrative that resonates in certain respects with 19th century native prophetic movements. So so there's this need in this space, and the Book of Mormon shows up in what is is this this vacuum of material that's that's speaking to what everyone in the culture is just needing at that moment. He says, quote, these native spiritual projects typically envisioned a glorious restoration of indigenous power and territory at the expense of Euro-American settlers. Such a vision is at the heart of the Book of Mormon. It is central to what Jesus teaches in 3 Nephi about a new Jerusalem whose primary architects are the remnant of Jacob and is the concluding message of both Mormon and Mormon chapter 7 and Moroni, whose famous promise it should be noted, is specifically directed to my brethren, the Lamanites, and not to humanity at large. It should be noted here, what he's saying is the Book of Mormon is speaking to a specific people, and that the culture is is just ripe for a message to be given to these people because of because of what's happened in this place called America, and the Book of Mormon rushes in. Hickman makes note of something we as Mormons often pass by. When you turn to Moroni chapter 10 and we read the promise in verses 3 through 5, if you back up two verses and start with verse 1, you realize that Moroni is issuing his challenge to the Lamanite, to the Lamanite and not to humanity at large. And, and as we're going to get into today, like you're going to begin to see that there's different folks who hold various spaces um, and various degrees of historicity. And these conversations are beginning, I think, my argument would be, I think for the very first time to kind of the surface of Mormonism, we're seeing 
this conversation take place. And so just because I read that long thing, it had lots of big words in it. Hopefully I didn't lose you and you didn't just tune out and say, I'm not going to listen to this episode today. If you're still with us, let's go to Richard Bushman, who I had on the podcast uh, a while back where he answered some really tough questions. And one of them was regarding uh, Book of Mormon historicity. And so here's Richard Bushman. I think right now the Book of Mormon is a puzzle for us. Even people who believe it hardly in, in every detail, it's a puzzle. And to begin with, we've got the puzzle of translation. Translating the book without the plates even in sight, they're wrapped up in a cloth on the table. Um, it's, so it's, it's not something that comes right off the pages, the characters on the plates, so we don't know how that works. And then there is the fact that there's phrasing everywhere, long phrases that if you Google them, uh, you'll find them in, uh, in 19th century writings that... The theology of the Book of Mormon is very much 19th century theology, and, you know, it, it reads like a 19th century understanding of the Hebrew Bible as an Old Testament. That is, it has Christ in it, the way Protestants saw Christ everywhere in the Old Testament. That's why we now call it Hebrew Bible, because the Jews never saw it uh, quite that way. So these are all problems we, we have to deal with. And, and lest I be accused of of painting Bushman a certain way or taking him out of context, let me be clear. In the interview, if you listen to his the next comment that follows the audio we just shared, he also goes into detail about some of the ancient things he sees in the Book of Mormon. That for him, it is a puzzle of evidence on both sides. And he doesn't know quite yet what to do with that. And he's saying that Mormonism doesn't quite know what to do with that, that that apologetic answers to why there's 19th century material, they're not quite dealing with the full scope of just how much 19th century material is in the Book of Mormon. And and he says, we still have got to formulate a better answer for this. And and we'll get to that in a little bit, because I think Sam Brown is hitting on this this idea of where we go with this better answer. But before we get to Sam, um, again, just to recognize that Bushman is saying, like, there's 19th century material in this. And there's 19th century material in this to the point where we have to come to grips with Joseph imposing, um, at, 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 in a, is a strong word, maybe implementing as a softer word, his own culture, milieu, his own theology, his own perspective, his own thoughts and beliefs into the Book of Mormon story. And so the, the debate is, is what is ancient and what isn't? And how do we untangle that? And it makes for a very interesting discussion. The other thing I should note is we go along. I, I haven't included the audio of these issues, although Sam Brown does speak to it. I haven't included the audio. I, Bushman touches on it. Um, we will read here a little bit of Grant Hardy talking about it. But a lot of these scholars, one of the things they're saying is, they're, they're saying that they personally, they're saying like, I personally hold ground that at least part of the Book of Mormon is an ancient text. But then they follow that up right away with the idea that, but I want to give room to people who do not hold the Book of Mormon as historical, that as long as they still find it to be scripture and inspirational, they still find it to connect them to the divine. These scholars then say, I want to leave 
room for that person to still be in the church and to be seen as completely faithful. Again, I think that's a new facet of the conversation that is just beginning to make itself uh, to the surface. Here's Grant Hardy. Grant says, and this was at the recent Fair Mormon conference, he says, when people talk about inspired fiction, it's worth thinking harder about what they might mean. Perhaps that the Book of Mormon is a product of human genius, like other literary or religious works. Or it may be the product of general revelation in which God or some higher power makes himself known to humans who then who then communicate that encounter with the divine through various scriptures such as Buddha Sutras or the Tao Jing or the Bhagavad Gita or the Quran. Or there may be special revelation in which God inspired Joseph to create the Book of Mormon in such a way that it exemplifies specific truths of unique importance. In any case, however, we might ask, can faith in the Book of Mormon as inspired fiction be a saving faith? My answer is absolutely. I believe that if someone at the judgment bar were to say, God, I couldn't make sense of the Book of Mormon as an ancient American codex given the available evidence, but I loved that book. I heard your voice in it, and I tried to live by its precepts as best I could. Then God will respond, quote, Well done, my good and faithful servant, unquote. And that's the unquote of Grant Hardy's comment as well. Um, Grant just, you know, Grant is one of these guys, if you read some of Grant Hardy's work, He is a lover of the Book of Mormon, and he has dissected and deconstructed various parts of it, trying to figure out like some of the depth and richness that's there. And he's he's explored that perhaps as much as anyone in Mormonism. And and I don't know exactly maybe where Grant personally stands, though I assume he still holds the Book of Mormon as an ancient text. But it seems like there's no doubt he realizes this messiness. He realizes the 19th century material is there. It's there in a way that would make it reasonable for someone to not be able to ascend to the belief in historicity. And he wants to make complete space in his personal perspective. And he even throws it onto the voice of God. That Book of Mormon historicity, if someone can't ascend to that, but still finds the Book of Mormon to be scripture then God bless them. God bless them. And and yes, that's a saving faith. And so Grant seems to be right there in Fair Mormon Conference saying, like, I'm okay, and I think God's okay if people don't hold the Book of Mormon as historical. Patrick Mason um, adds adds another idea, and, and he doesn't specifically mention historicity, but at the same Fair Mormon Conference, Patrick Mason talks about the truth cart. And and Mason says, he says, one of the problems we have in Mormonism is that we have loaded too much into the truth cart. And then when anything in the cart starts to rot a bit or look unseemly upon further inspection, some have a tendency to overturn the entire cart or seek a refund for the whole lot. We have loaded so much into the truth cart largely because we have wanted to have the same kind of certainty about our religious claims down to rather obscure doctrinal issues, as we do about scientific claims. Over the years, church leadership and laity have also done our religion no favors by putting more in the cart than the cart could possibly bear. Many of the things which trouble people are things which we probably should never have been all that dogmatic about in the first place. 
I find that a little humility about our doctrine, especially given the contingencies of its historical development, goes a long way in remaining satisfied with the whole. So if we can maybe, if we can just assume that, that Patrick Mason would at least, at least grant, and I think he would, I think he would at least grant, like, like nobody's asking the church to advocate a non-historical view. Nobody's saying, LDS Church, you have to advocate. You have to go go to the pulpit and you have to say, Book of Mormon historicity is something we're not holding on to anymore. You don't have to do that. I think what Patrick Mason would say on that issue, and, and again, I would welcome him either, either saying something to this effect uh, in response to me putting words in his mouth, or, or at some point we'll have him back on and we'll ask him this directly. But I think what Patrick would say is he would hope that we as a faith can be tolerant and feel secure and not feel threatened by having folks in our midst who hold a temple recommend, who are fully active, who hold callings, who hold the Book of Mormon as scripture but cannot ascend to historicity. Like, not that we have to advocate for it, but can we leave enough room on the edges of our tent for those folks to be undercover. Richard Bushman recently also talked about the dominant narrative, and I think it has to be said here as we talk about this subject. He says, I think for the the church to remain strong, it has to reconstruct its narrative. The dominant narrative is not true. it, It can't be sustained. The church has to absorb all this new information, or it will be on very shaky grounds, and that's what it is trying to do. And it will be a strain for a lot of people, older people especially. But I think it has to change. In my in my interview with Adam Miller, Adam Miller, when I asked him about Book of Mormon historicity, and I and I I know I'll mess this up in a way, and I'm not using Adam Miller's exact words. I'm paraphrasing or putting it in my own words. But Adam Miller said something to the effect of, you know, when we look at Moroni ten three through five and the promise that's in there. We we often, when we talk about the Book of Mormon being true, because we've prayed, because we've received a witness, the conclusion so many Mormons are making is that the, the Book of Mormon being true means the Book of Mormon is historical. And Adam Miller shifts our perspective by saying that Moroni would be bothered, perhaps even offended, that we are praying about the truth of Moroni. That Moroni is challenging us to pray about these things in the book. And by these things, he means the doctrine and principles and theology of Christ and of the plan of salvation. Not of Nephi and Alma and Moroni and Mormon. And that Moroni would be deeply bothered that after we read his promise, that we go into our prayer closets And we ask God if Moroni is real. That the purpose of the book is to draw us to Christ. And that that gift that the Book of Mormon has sits outside of historicity. And so I think Adam Miller does a beautiful job shifting our perspective to recognize that when we testify that the Book of Mormon is true, when we voice those words from our lips, what we should be thinking in our mind and heart is that this book draws me to Christ. It does its job. It connects me to the divine. It encourages me to have a relationship and interaction with the Christ of faith. And if it does that, then it's doing its job. It's true. 
I just interviewed Sam Brown last uh, week, although obviously this episode will probably come out much later. But let's go to what Sam Brown says. And then I want to finish up with two quotes from church leaders that gives us kind of where the church is at. And then we'll offer kind of a conclusion. Here's Sam Brown. I'm sympathetic to people who are feeling torn or cross-pressured that on the one hand, they feel a sense of identification with the contemporary world that's brought so many marvelous things to our doorstep. And I'm not talking about iPhones and other silly technological things. I'm talking about fundamental changes in the nature of society and equality that have been important moves forward. And I'm talking about deeper understandings of the nature of our experience in the world that I think are also worth embracing. So on on the one hand, we feel this allegiance to this modern world that we inhabit that has certain inviolate, apparently, assumptions about the way the world works, the way we gather information, and the way we situate ourselves with relation to God. But we also sense that at the core of it, there's a kind of emptiness, a kind of void, and, and we feel, many of us, that religion, particularly a robust religion like Mormonism, has answers and content and meaning to fill that void, but then sometimes struggles to express itself and its insights in a way that can make sense within the modern assumptions about the way the world and the mind work. So I'm very sympathetic to people who feel cross-pressured. You're not alone. I think everyone feels a certain amount of cross-pressure. Now to the particular question of the nature of translation and Mormonism, I think there are two questions that got merged together that ought to be kept separate. And one question is, can you be a faithful Mormon and not hold a traditional historicist view of the Book of Mormon? And I think the answer to that is quite clearly, yes, you can be a faithful Mormon and not have a testimony of every particular claim. And in fact, I think you're seeing that even though the church leaders still feel strongly that the best way is to understand the Book of Mormon as an historical record, an ancient record, that that people are loved and welcomed and belong in the church, even if they're not able to persuade themselves that the Book of Mormon is an historical ancient book. So that that, I think, is a question of how do we live together when we have different understandings of some of our core doctrines. That will continue to take a lot of work to sort out, and as with every really ups and downs and sticking points and points of flexibility and compromise that I think are worth the struggle. Now, the second question is a much more academic and intellectual question, and I feel much better able to answer that in relatively straightforward terms. To my reading as an academic, now speaking not as a believer, but just as an academic, the Book of Mormon is quite clear, and this I argue in a paper that's forthcoming in an Oxford collection, I think it's called Americanist Approaches to the Book of Mormon. In that I argue that the Book of Mormon quite self-consciously advocates a vision of scripture that is hybrid. And the hybrid scripture specifically requires a written text and a living prophet. And scripture arises from the conjunction of a written text and a living prophet, much as the traditional Mormon model of the human being is 
a spirit and a body representing the soul of a person. In the case of Scripture, according to the Book of Mormon, a text and a living prophet or seer constitute Scripture. Now, if we take that model of hybrid Scripture seriously, then I think we're forced to expect that the Book of Mormon, particularly the Book of Mormon as it comes to be in the world, will be both a 19th century and an antique document. So as I read the Book of Mormon speaking solely academically, I think the Book of Mormon requires that it be both ancient and 19th century. So in this case, I think the academic reading of the Book of Mormon is quite compatible with a devotional reading or a believer's reading of the Book of Mormon that says that anachronisms belong in the Book of Mormon. And Jared Hickman, a good friend and very bright English professor at Johns Hopkins, will also be at the conference at Utah State. And his paper, using some literary critical techniques, but in a very straightforward and understandable way, grapples with that same question. And he argues, and I agree with him, that the Book of Mormon, according to its own self-understanding, expects anachronism. So the quick summary of that long answer is that the Book of Mormon wants to be anachronistic. And when you find 19th century material in the Book of Mormon, you haven't caught the Book of Mormon in a mistake you've finally begun to grapple, if you're thoughtful, with the reality that the Book of Mormon rejects strict linear temporality and rejects the notion that any given encounter with God has to be locked in the temporal space in which it first occurred. And so you can see Sam do a a beautiful job trying to help us as a people on both sides, right? Like being a bridge builder and and seeing that on one hand you have the orthodox literal view that every single thing in the Book of Mormon is is the experience of these ancient people writing down these things and it's just a coincidence. And and right and those and most of those folks aren't even aware of what we mean by saying there's nineteenth century material in it. And so those folks, while they're either not aware, if they were aware, if they held that view still, they would say something like, it's just a coincidence that that 19th century material is in there. It just, it just happens to look like that. It's really not that. But he's also speaking to the people on the other side. And, and he's saying, look, for those of you who think the Book of Mormon is just a complete 19th century hoax or fraud, Like, let's take you two groups and let's stop making it either or and let's talk about what could possibly be going on here. And and I think he frames it beautifully. And so you can see that, again, for the first time, I think, ever in Mormonism, I mean, go back, look at look at dialogue and Sunstone magazine and 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 sure, some of these conversations are taking place there, but you you're never seeing them out in the public arena where the average member of the church has access to this conversation and and with the internet with with social media and groups on social media 
in discussion boards. It's amazing these conversations are beginning to kind of take place. Someone can copy and paste a quote and, and put it on a Facebook page or put it on Twitter. And next thing you know, 30, 70, 300, 1,000 people have seen it. And, and you begin to see like a few of them reshare it and a few of them comment. And then their friends and family begin to see these quotes. And suddenly you realize like the space is growing. And what it feels like is these scholars are being, again, these are faithful church scholars, not necessarily working for the church per se, but these are faithful scholars that the church looks to as faithful scholars. And these people are having out loud conversations about wanting to make room for non-historical belief, as well as themselves saying, look, there's so much 19th century material in the Book of Mormon that we haven't formulated a great answer yet. And you heard Sam Brown, I think, take a beautiful stab at, at one way to reconcile that. And there's so many little different shifts and angles that we can begin to take this conversation. And you're going to begin to see this play out. Now, the question is, how has the church seen this? And so one talk is Elder Oaks. This is quite a while back. Um, it was a presentation he gave. I think it was at like BYU, maybe a farms conference. Uh, I don't remember the exact um, venue in which he gave it, but it was more of a scholarly uh, venue than like general conference or an Enzyme article. And Elder Oaks, I, I took some bits and pieces here. The talk is fascinating. I would I would encourage anyone to read it. Obviously, it'll be linked in the podcast. But Elder Oaks says, Some who term themselves believing Latter-day Saints are advocating that Latter-day Saints should abandon claims that the Book of Mormon is a historical record of the ancient peoples of the Americas. They are promoting the feasibility of reading and using the Book of Mormon as nothing more than a pious fiction with some valuable contents. These practitioners of so-called higher criticism raise the question of whether the Book of Mormon, which our prophets have put forward as the preeminent scripture of this dispensation, is fact or fable, history or just a story. In these remarks, I will seek to use rational argument, but I will not rely on any proofs. I will approach the question of historicity of the Book of Mormon from the standpoint of faith and revelation. I maintain that the issue of the historicity of the Book of Mormon is basically a difference between those who rely exclusively on scholarship and those who rely on a combination of scholarship, faith, and revelation. So I want to stop here because I want you to see the paradox. Elder Oaks is saying that those who see the Book of Mormon as perhaps scripture, and and he uses the words pious fiction, with some valuable content. And he, and he talks about believing Latter-day Saints. He talks about how prophets have put it forward as the preeminent scripture of this dispensation and whether that is fact or fable, history or just a story. And, and what Elder Oaks is doing is he's, he's creating kind of a black and white perspective in either or. Either it came from God or it's a fable and a story, a made up story. And, and he's not leaving much middle ground. And and he's not really leaving middle ground in respects to saying, like, could could a believing Latter-day Saint believe it's scripture? Like scripture, like like God is in it, and yet it's still completely a nineteenth century product. It like that kind of gets left out of his words. And and instead he seems to 
um, want to impose that it's an either or paradigm with no gray area in the middle. And, and when you say that those who understand it as historical are using scholarship, faith, and revelation, and you don't leave room for anyone who sees it less than that to also be operating under scholarship, faith, and revelation, then you've painted people into corners where they feel a tension to have to choose one or the other and not be able to hang around in that middle ground. And, and I would, and I would argue that there's some beautiful members of the church with deep faith, with a deep relationship with God, who have read the scholarship, who having a deep faith have received revelation and hold some space in that middle ground. It's almost as if there's um, an unaware recognition, a recog, being unaware of the recognition that revelation can lead people to various places, various spaces of ground to hold. And I think one of the things you're seeing change in Mormonism, when Grant Hardy says, is a non-historical belief, could it be a saving faith? And he says, absolutely. He's recognizing that one can be in relationship with God, one can be aware of the information, and that revelation can lead them to some other space than it does another Latter-day Saint. Elder Oaks, he continues, he says, In fact, it is our position that secular evidence can neither prove nor disprove the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Its authenticity depends, as it says, on a witness of the Holy Spirit. Our side will settle for a draw, but those who deny the historicity of the Book of Mormon cannot settle for a draw. They must try to disprove its historicity, or they seem to feel a necessity to do this. And this, and in this, they are unsuccessful because even the secular evidence viewed in its entirety is too complex for that. Again, I would, I'm going to jump in here. I just want to make space like to say that yes, a testimony of the Book of Mormon as scripture depends on a witness of the Holy Spirit. A testimony of historicity, I, I don't think is affected by the Holy Ghost. I think some members make that conclusion and that binding in in that intertwining knot on their own and inside their head, thinking that one is connected to the other. But I want to hesitate here and say that I really, I really don't see, as Adam Miller says, I really don't see the Holy Ghost bearing testimony of Mormon and Moroni. I see the Holy Ghost as bearing testimony of these things. And and in the, in the book uh, When Mormons Doubt. The author, I'm just, I'm spacing it, the last name of the author, but his first name is John, and he makes the argument that the Holy Ghost really doesn't bear testimony of historical truth. Rather, the Holy Ghost bears testimony of beauty and goodness. And that when we try to learn, as the scriptures say, by study and by faith, that the study allows us to gain insight into the facts and data of the history, and the faith allows us to gain insight and testimony into the beauty and goodness of our religion, of, of the world, of humanity, of, of how God's interacting with his children. And so again, I just want to hesitate here and say like, not trying to push, push back in a critical way, but that, that I feel like there's a lot of middle ground that Elder Oaks isn't talking about or addressing or making any kind of space for. Elder Oaks continues, he says, sadly, some Latter-day Saints ridicule others for their reliance on revelation. Such ridicule tends to come from those whose scholarly credentials are high 
and whose spiritual credentials are low. Again, I want to stop here. When, when somebody tries to have a conversation, when somebody who is deep in the messiness of a faith transition, when that person tries to take someone aside and say, look, you have relied completely on the spirit for your testimony. And your testimony includes false things. Your testimony includes believing past prophets, teaching that that certain people of color were less valiant in the premortal life. That that your testimony of the gospel includes things that that were included in some of the leaders' writings that we now no longer hold as true in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like there has to be some room without poisoning the well to have a conversation where, where I or someone like me can go to another Latter day Saint and look and say, look, I know you've had a spiritual testimony of the church and the gospel. Let's talk about some of the things your, your bubble of what's true includes. And let me, let me try to share with you better information so that you can set some of the faith promoting nonsense aside. But you see, when someone comes in and says something like, sadly, some Latter-day Saints ridicule others for their reliance on revelation, such ridicule tends to come from those whose scholarly credentials are high and whose spiritual credentials are low. Not that Elder Oaks is saying that, but what people sometimes hear is that anybody who tells me not to rely on revelation or suggests that I question the truth that I've come to by revelation is ridiculing me. And they're the other. There's us and them, and they're the them. They're outside of what is acceptable to me. You see, in a sense, that that reception, that interpretation of Elder Oaks' words poisons the well. And it keeps any of us from having honest conversations where I can tell somebody, like raise my hand and say, look, you can hold that perspective if you want, but here's better information, and let me tell you how I've come to believe this differently, and I no longer hold the ground that you believe you've come to by revelation. That that I don't need to be marginalized as somebody who's coming to you and saying, look, you're making, you're creating a belief in your paradigm that simply doesn't hold up. And whether you've come to that by revelation or not, you need to be open to at least questioning whether it's true. Elder Oaks finishes, he says, The Book of Mormon's major significance is its witness of Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God, the Eternal Father, who redeems and saves us from death and sin. If an account stands as a preeminent witness of Jesus Christ, how can it possibly make no difference whether the account is fact or fable, whether the persons really lived who prophesied of Christ and gave eyewitnesses of his appearance to them. And I simply say, look, this is an older talk. And and I don't know if Elder Oak still holds this ground or not. I don't know. But I'm simply saying that it feels like a paradox between what Elder Oaks is saying and what Grant, what Grant Hardy has said. And I'm simply suggesting that people wrestle with that paradox. Can somebody, can somebody hold the Book of Mormon as scripture, but not believe it to be historical? And can that belief be part of their saving faith. Let's finish up with, with Elder Holland. He's asked by a gentleman at PBS, or maybe a lady too, I don't, I don't know who the interviewer is, but he's asked by someone at PBS, you say there are stark choices and beliefs about the origins of the book. Explain why there's no middle way. 
Elder Holland says this. He says, if someone can find something in the Book of Mormon, anything that they love or respond to or find dear, I applaud that and say more power to you. That's what I find too. And that should not in any way discount somebody's liking a passage here or a passage there or the whole idea of the book, but not agreeing to its origin, its divinity. I think you'd be aware, as I am, that we have many people who are members of the church who do not have some burning conviction as to its origins, who have some other feeling about it that is not as committed to foundational statements in the premises of Mormonism. But we're not going to invite somebody out of the church over that any more than we would anything else about degrees of belief or steps of hope or steps of conviction. We would say, this is the way I see it. And this is the faith I have. This is the foundation on which I'm going forward. If you can, if, sorry, if I can help you work toward that, I'd be glad to. But I don't love you less. I don't distance you more. I don't say you're unacceptable to me as a person or even as a Latter-day Saint. If you can't make that step or move to the beat of that drum, we really don't want to sound smug. We don't want to seem uncompromising and and, and sensitive. But there are things we can't give away. There are some foundational stones. If you don't have those, you don't have anything. So the first vision, the Book of Mormon, those are pretty basic things. Now, I want to say, like... I've been kind of back and forth on this issue myself. I just recently with my, that, that's the unquote with Holland, by the way. I, I went to, this is, you know, me talking about my own life. I, I went to Salt Lake City recently for a vacation with my kids and I go to the church history library and it's the first time I've seen it since it's been redone. And just the messiness of Mormonism and just, I had some really neat experiences on this trip and, and I simply want to say like, there's been times where I'm like, yep, Book of Mormon's not historical, but there's nothing I can do other than to say it's scripture still. And, and there's, yes, there's 19th century material in it. And I explain it by saying, look, this is just a 19th century work. And yet I still hold it as connecting me to the divine. And, and this trip out to Salt Lake City recently and my conversation with Sam Brown and, and listening to Gina Colvin's recent interview with Richard Bushman, like, like I'm beginning to kind of wrestle with that a little more again. And, and I realize that in my soul, in my, in my being, there's, there's this spot of space where I'm still open to, to, to God somehow being in the middle of this mess and that, that on some level, there's something ancient to the Book of Mormon. Now, again, I'm, I'm fully on board that the dominant narrative isn't true. And this, the way we frame this story, the way we tell our story, it doesn't hold up. We have to completely reframe what all these things mean. But I'm simply saying, like, can we leave room for God to be in it? And that for every human hand who has touched it to have underreached and overreached, distorting it so, so bad that it is a struggle. It is a struggle to see God's original hand in it. Like, can we grant that? And I'm simply saying, like, there's enough of an echo within this that I see, like, no problem, like, just staying in this tension and continuing continuing to wrestle with it. Let me, let me finish by saying that I don't need the church to advocate a non-historical perspective. What I do want and hope and pray for is that the church can begin to say some things publicly 
you know, Elder Holland kind of hits on some of it, but then his last sentence seems to kind of completely close it off again. Can we say some things publicly that would say, like, this is the position the church is going to hold, that the Book of Mormon is historical, but we want our bishops and our stake presidents to be clear on this point, that if a member of the church cannot ascend to the belief that the Book of Mormon is historical, that we, as church leadership, still see that person who holds the Book of Mormon not as historical, but as scripture and as connecting them to the divine and as encouraging them to have a testimony of the restoration, that as long as they are faithful in the church, that we see them as faithful. We see them as participating actively in the church with a saving faith. If somebody at the top levels of the church could say that, it would be such a lightning, a a mode of lightening up the burden that so many are carrying right now. Like that would be a sign and an indicator that we want to make space for people to stay rather than feel pushed out. It's my prayer. It's my hope that we can make space for, as Grant Hardy says, those who are Mormon and hold the Book of Mormon to be non-historical, but still hold it to be scripture, for that to be a saving faith, for that person to be seen as completely faithful and and permitted to fully participate with no reservations, with no reason to say, like, why should we even talk about this? That's my prayer. May the Lord warm your shoulders. God bless you. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. Taking out my issues never healed